Thanks for listening to the Faith Church Podcast. We are one church at five locations, streaming online every Sunday morning at live.faithishere.org. We hope that you're challenged and encouraged by today's message. And if you'd like to watch or listen to previous messages, or if you'd like to learn more about who we are as a church and how you can stay connected, head over to faithishere.org. Welcome, Faith. Hey, good to see everybody here today. Take your Bibles out. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Uh, while you're turning, let me just remind you of a couple of things. Mother's Day is going to be awesome because this wonderful lady right here is going to be bringing the word, Jeannie. And uh, she's got a message from God for this congregation. And she's also a mother. So that kind of helps give that perspective that I really can't give. But anyway, she'll be bringing the word next week. Invite your mamas and your daughters and uh, mothers. Bring everybody here. We'll have a great, great time in the presence of the Lord. Also, one announcement, didn't make your bulletin. The golf tournament's coming up. Make sure you sign up in the four-year church on your way out. We have a great time, a lot of fellowship. Money we raise goes to missions. It's in Somerville this year. It's at Myler Country Club, so you don't have to run all the way up to Santee, so we'd like you to join and be a part of that with us. And then for though we're gonna have a luncheon for all the men working at Lieber. Just just a note of victory I wanna share real quick. Over $22,000 has already come in for Lieber Church. Give yourselves a hand. Isn't that amazing? You guys did awesome. And uh, you're still time to give, but uh, we thank you so much for doing that. Now, we're finishing our story up, uh, our series on breakthrough, on how to tear down strongholds, bringing these strongholds down. And what we want to do today is not just focus on any one particular stronghold, but give you a foundation that will help you for any stronghold or temptation or sin or whatever comes your way, whatever tries to hold you back, just kind of sum it all up in this one chapter of Romans chapter 8. Now, we titled this sermon, It Doesn't End Here. This is really the only beginning. And many of you are already breaking free from specific sins, strongholds. Some of you guys, when we preached on forgiveness and the stronghold of bitterness and offense, you went and made it right with that person. I've heard about relationships being restored that have been dormant for the last five years and God doing amazing things. I met a lady in the parking lot uh, a week ago, said, I I just want to let you know I'm free from tobacco. I've laid my cigarettes down and never going to smoke again. And she's going to live a whole lot longer, and it's really awesome. And so God is doing that around the church. But I want to give you a foundation that is going to help you moving forward of a life of freedom and joy and life in the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's stand together, Romans chapter 8 and verse number 36. For your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things... We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither things present nor the future nor any power nor height nor depth nor any other else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. What an amazing, amazing promise that we have to hang on to. Father, we love you so much. We thank you for your word. Your word is true, and quick, and living, and I pray it will do its work in our hearts and lives today. I, I thank you for the same comfort that you used the Apostle Paul to bring to the early church in Rome that you will bring to us today, those who are going through trials, those who are facing tests and challenges in their own life. I pray they will find hope in this scripture today. We love you. We ask in your mighty name, amen. Turn to someone and say, we are more than conquerors, and then you may be seated. Paul writes this in A.D. 57 to the church at Rome. 
Rome is the most powerful empire on the face of the earth at this time, the time Paul wrote this. They, their empire extends from Britain all the way through Germany, in, uh, through Asia Minor, all throughout Asia Minor, and even to North Africa. So the Roman Empire is vast. It is massive. They are both conquerors and they are builders. And so they would conquer areas. They rebuild the areas. And it's an amazing civilization, an amazing empire they have there. And at the hub, at the core of it all, is the city of Rome. Now, Paul writes this to the church. And at this time, the church is in good graces with Rome. And he says, we're more than conquerors. And it may sound like a wonderful line for them to hang on to, but something is going to happen seven years later. AD 64, Nero is in power. And he wants to do kind of a a renovation project in the city. So he's going to burn it to the ground. And he burns about 14 wards to the ground. I don't know if he intended to do that many or not, but the fire gets out of control. Hundreds die. Thousands are displaced out of their homes. 14 wards of the city of Rome are burned to rubble. They are gone. And now the whole city begins to turn their attention to Nero. And Nero, to deflect attention off of himself, puts all the blame on the Christians. He says, the Christians did this. If you see fire in your city burning, it's this little cult group called Christians, followers of Jesus. They're the ones who lit the fire. They're the ones who started this thing. And this rage kind of wells up within the city of Rome, and they turn all their rage and, and hatred towards Christianity and towards the early church. And so they will take these believers and Nero will have them burned at the stake. And they take people and they hang them on crosses. It would line the Appian Way going in and out the city of, of Rome and they would light them on fire alive. And they would burn there for their faith in Jesus. They would take believers, they'd throw them into the animals and uh, in the Colosseums and the, and the masses would cheer on. The, the lions and the tigers and all the other animals would come out and just rip these believers to shreds. They would put boiling oil over them. They'd put their bodies between two horses and send one one way and one the other and literally let their, rip their bodies in two. That's how intense the persecution was that swept throughout not only Rome but the Roman Empire. It is during the next four years, AD 64 to AD 68, that Peter is killed for his faith in Jesus Christ, and also Paul is going to be beheaded for his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is an incredible, intense persecution. And Paul writes the Romans church, and he says, we are more than conquerors. I don't care what happens, uh, death, nor life, sword, peril, persecution, whatever comes your way, nothing, nothing will separate you from the love of God. They needed that message. But I will tell you the words that Paul wrote to the Roman church are just as relevant for the church today. And you may be going through stuff and you may be facing things and you're wondering, God, where are you? Do you see when I'm suffering? I can't overcome these strongholds and these obstacles and what's going on in my life. I want to tell you these words are just as relevant for us today. We never have to fear separation from God. God loves us. He is for you absolutely. And he gives three amazing declarations, and I want to share those with you today. The first is found in verses 31 and 32. The first is simply this. There is no opposition. There is no opposition. Look at these verses, if you would. What shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, the the question is, If God is for us, that's not a question. It really could even be translated since God is for us. But since God is for us, what he's saying is no opposition can really come against us. Why? Because God's for us. And he's stronger and greater and more powerful. Therefore, there's no real opposition. God is for us. 
Who can be against us? Look at the next verse. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will we not also along with him graciously give us all things? Now listen, your enemies will be many. There will be those who will come against you. Jesus Christ said, if they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. So you can expect ridicule, you can expect opposition, you can expect persecution at the workplace and wherever you're at. They will make fun of you, they will exclude you, they will mock you, they will cut you out because you're of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That will come. Tragedy comes to all of us. There will be times in your life where you'll go through a loss, a separation, a tragedy that is just so amazing, so overwhelming, disease and death. Those things plague all of humanity today. Uh, Our own flesh battles within us. There's a war, the Bible says. Paul writes, there's a battle between our flesh nature and the spirit of God, that spirit nature. And so uh, my flesh comes against me probably more than anything else that I will ever battle and face along the way. The evil one himself, the Bible says he goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He is the accuser of the brethren who accuses us day and night before the throne. I will tell you, you have a real enemy of your soul. He is Satan. He's out to get you. Death itself will occur and will happen in our lives should the Lord tarry. But the the question is, you can't stop there. Who shall be against us? The idea, because God's for me, None of these things matter because God is greater. He is more powerful, and whatever we face, it's nothing compared to the fact that God is for us. Hey, let's say that together. God is for me. Isn't that amazing? God is for me. He's for us. He's not looking for you to make a mistake so he can squash you and stamp you out. He is for you. He loves you so very, very much. He's your heavenly father. He's in the stands cheering you on. He is for us, absolutely. And he gave his proof in verse 32. He says, I'll show you how much I'm for you. Who who did not spare his only son. He gave his son up for us. How shall he not freely with that give us all things. In other words, if, if God paid the ultimate price to pay for your forgiveness, to pay for your salvation, don't you think he'll give you everything you need to see that salvation to completion? We have everything we need to make it, to cross the finish line. If he gave his son on the cross to die for you and take away all your sins, is he not also able to give you victory throughout the rest of this life and see you safely home to the end? That's the logic Paul gives In that verse 32, God's love for you is unshakable. All opposition is powerless before the face of Almighty God. Now, it doesn't mean temptation is not going to come. There will be times of temptation. It doesn't mean your eyes won't get off track and your eyes will wander and see things you probably ought not to see. It doesn't mean there aren't stumbling blocks in place to try to get you to fall and stumble along the way and maybe even give up in this race. It just means because of Jesus, now I have the power to overcome. Now I have the power to win. Now I have the key to victory because God can help me and he has already won the victory for me by giving his own son. There's no opposition. Now now here's the deal. The enemy's defeated. He was defeated on the cross. Satan is already whooped. He defeated foe. And, and, and so he can't get Jesus. He's already lost the war. What he does is he tries to attack the offspring, and that's us. So he attacks the church. He attacks believers. He attacks us. 
He does two things. He tries to bring shame because of our past, that's his accusation, or fear concerning our future. So the two major tactics Satan will use in coming against you is shame or fear. Now the first time you see shame is all the way back in the book of Genesis. You read about Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve are in harmony with God. They're walking with God. Everything's great. They're walking in the cool of the day. And it's paradise and it's amazing. But they sinned and they fell. And you know the story of Adam and Eve's fall and sin. And the Bible, that we see a new word introduced in scripture, a new emotion that they had never ever felt before. It says, and now they were naked and ashamed. So shame is the Satan's enemy, the enemy's way of turning ourselves against ourselves. It is me coming against myself because he can't defeat me because of the blood of Jesus, but if he can make me feel ashamed because of what I've done or who I am or where I'm at, if he can make me feel shame, he can immobilize me. He can paralyze me and keep me right there. Shame will paralyze you Fear will paralyze you, and it will keep you from being effective in the kingdom of God. Shame is that guilt turned inward. But now I want you to look. It says they were naked and ashamed. The Bible says that now I am clothed in the righteousness of Christ Jesus. I have put on Christ. So that means I am literally covered in Jesus Christ, and another expression we use is covered by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, and because of that blood covering that is now over my life, because I've accepted his love, I've accepted his grace, he says, there is now no more shame. I'm no longer naked, I'm clothed in Christ. I am clothed, I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And so I stand today holy and pure and clean before the Lord because I have been robed in him, clothed in him. Therefore, shame cannot stick to me any longer. Isn't that awesome? I have Jesus. I have everything. And he will try to keep you in shame. But when you understand the great love of God and nothing can separate me from his love and I know that Christ died for me so that I could be justified. In fact, the Bible says in Romans 5, 8 that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So shame has to go, which leads me to my second no and it's simply this, there's no condemnation. No condemnation. Now let's look at the Bible and see what it says. Look at verse one. There is therefore now no condemnation, no shame, right? For those who are in Christ Jesus. I am in him, I am located in him, I am hidden in him, I am covered in him. Therefore there's no condemnation, no shame. And then he jumped down and he explains it again in verse 33. Look at those words. Who... Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. That word justify, you could just say just as if I've never sinned. It's God who justifies. I stand justified before God like I've never committed one sin in my life. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who has been raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Now, let me just start out with something right now. There is a difference between condemnation and conviction. Conviction is the work of the Holy Spirit working within my conscience, helping me when I get off track. 
Because if I get off track, uh, it, it, it hurts my fellowship and relationship with God. And so that Holy Spirit conviction for things I do that are wrong, for sins I commit, bring me back to repentance. And so I repent before God. And the Bible says that if we sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us if we confess that sin. And so I may get off here, I may get off this way, I may get in some things I shouldn't be in, and so the Holy Spirit works in me to draw me back to the Father heart of God. But condemnation is different. Condemnation is the enemy saying, see, look what you did, you're no good. You're a sinner, you're a liar, you will always be one, you will always be a sinner, you can't help yourself, you're beyond help, you're beyond hope, you're really no good, you're no good, you're no good. That's condemnation. There's a difference between Holy Spirit conviction that says you are a blood-bought child of God, I just wanna draw you back close to me again, than there is between condemnation or shame that says you are no good. Wow. Totally, totally different. Verse 33 says, who will bring any charge against God's elect? Now, this is a legal question. So what the apostle Paul, when he writes the Romans, who were very legal-minded, they had, we get most of our laws come from the Roman government eventually, and so, so the laws are legal people, and so he uses a legal analogy or a legal illustration, and it says, who shall bring any charge? It literally means to call in or to summon so who can summon you into court as God's elect? Now, let me paint the scene for you. Let's, uh, the accuser wants to cause you to doubt the love of God. So what he does is he says, you know what? You're going through this. God really can't love you, and you've sinned and failed here. God must not be able to keep you, and you've blown it here, and you've got this accuser out there. And what he always attacks is the love of God. And so you begin to doubt, does God really love me? And so he uses this thing of accusation and fear. And he brings charges against us and he says, you know what, you're greedy. You got greed in your heart. You want more and more and more and you're greedy or you're jealous. You deal with jealousy and you've got all these jealous feelings and emotions or you're proud and the enemy says, you know what, you got a lot of pride in your life. You are a proud man. You are a proud lady. Or, or he says, you know what, you're lustful because you're dealing with all these lustful thoughts and he says, you're lustful and, or you might say you're angry and you're flying off at the handle. You're angry with everybody you see. You get angry and you, you, you got unforgiveness against others and the enemy levels all the these charges against us. Now, what can we say? The only thing we can say is guilty is charged. Satan's right. I am every one of those things he just said. I deal with all those issues in my life. And he's right, and he is, he's right. But here's the deal. The penalty, the price for every one of those things has already been paid. So I go to the court, he levels his charges, but all of a sudden he stamps my thing paid in full. There's no condemnation anymore because I've been set free, saved, forgiven, cleansed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It has been totally paid in full. You see, the penalty for my sins is death. That was paid for already by Jesus Christ on the cross. And so now God, through his grace, has declared me justified, just as if I've never sinned, innocent. And there is no one power, there is no one more powerful that can overturn what my heavenly father says. Because he's God. 
Let me, let me see if I can put it in terms that we can understand in this courtroom scene. Let's say you get a summons to appear in court and someone's bringing a lawsuit against you. And you know it's a frivolous lawsuit. You know there's no merit to it whatsoever, but you gotta go. And there's a little knot in your stomach that's kind of tied up because he might have a slick attorney and he might win the case and you might be punished for whatever the case may be. And so you go to court. But what happens is when you walk into the courtroom, you see sitting behind the uh, judge's seat, you see that your father's the judge. Oh yeah, I got this one won. (laughs) No worries here. Because your dad's seated at the place of judgment. And he says, when he hears all the case, all the accusations, he says, you're innocent, you're free to go because someone came along and paid your price. He paid your fine and his name is Jesus and so you can leave. Colossians 2 and verse 14 says, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. So that charge of greed, bam. That charge of pride, bam. That charge of lust, nails in his feet, bam. Gone. Nailed with him to the cross. Verse 34, he says there, let me read it to you again. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is ever interceding for us. He says no charge can stick. He gives us three reasons. Number one, Jesus Christ died. And Colossians says all my sins were nailed with him to the cross. Number two, he rose from the dead. And the Bible says that he was raised for our justification. So when he rose out of the dead, he took all my sins with him. And number three, he is ever interceding at the right hand of God. And so I have a defense attorney. He's up there. His name is Jesus. And so when I blow up, you know what? He's saying, covered. I've paid for his sins. I've forgiven him. I've cleansed him. He is my defense attorney before the God morning, noon, and night. And by the way, the right hand is the place of power and authority. So he is at the right hand of God, seated there, ever making intercession for us. He is my attorney. He's my defense attorney. Who can have a better defense attorney than the Lord Jesus Christ? You see, you may feel, and this is, what, this is the trick of the enemy, you may feel like your sin is too bad or I've asked for forgiveness and I've blown it again, and, and the, but I will tell you, God's love for you never, ever changes. It is the one thing that is constant. It is eternal. Nothing, nothing, nothing can separate you from his love. And when you accept that, it changes everything. And if you'll get this in your heart and this in your spirit, it is a game changer for the rest of your life. If you get caught in condemnation, and you start sulking, and you get caught in shame and guilt, it will render you powerless to be used by God. And the enemy wants to take you out of the game. You see, God is powerful, but if we sulk, If we sit under shame and condemnation, it renders us powerless. We're we're on a spiritual journey, every one of us. Everybody in the room who knows Jesus, you you are on a spiritual journey. And, And what happens is when you come on this journey, picture a big mountain that's before you, okay? And you see that mountain before you and the mountain represents your stronghold or that mountain may represent your guilt or that mountain may represent your shame or that mountain 
may represent all your failures or all your sins or all your struggles or those things you deal with. And you come head to head with this mountain and, and what happens is you try to climb the mountain and get over top of it in your own strength. And you try to tell yourself, I'm gonna do better, I'm gonna do better. And you climb and you look for a foothold only to find yourself missing the foothold and slipping down 10 feet further down. And you look up at the top of the mountain and it's in the fog up there and you can't see a thing and you don't even see where you're going and you don't see the end in sight. And that mountain stands before you is a great obstacle or barrier to you discovering fullness of life for yourself. Okay, you got the imagery? Now turn to Zechariah. I want you to turn to Zechariah chapter four, verse number six. Zechariah is uh, Governor Zerubbabel, is the governor of Jerusalem. They are looking at the amazing mountain of trying to rebuild the temple. And so Zechariah receives a vision from God as a prophet of the Lord, and he writes about this vision. So look at Zechariah chapter four and verse number six. So he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. So we're trying to take these strongholds down by my might and my power and we keep failing and we keep stumbling and we keep slipping along the way. But he said, it's by my spirit, says the Lord. Now let's keep reading. What are you, O mighty mountain? What are you, O mighty mountain? Listen to this. Before Zerubbabel, you will become level ground. Then he will say, then he will bring out the capstone, the capstone of the temple, and we know later the capstone is an image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he will bring out the capstone, look at this. Uh, oh, yeah, I lost my place. To shouts of God bless it, God bless it. Now that in the Hebrew, God bless it can be translated grace. Grace, grace. We'll bring out the capstone, we'll bring out Jesus Christ to shouts of grace. Grace. Then the word of the Lord came to me, the hand of Zerubbabel that has laid the foundation of this temple, his hand will also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Now listen, we are the temple of the living God and the hand that brought us to salvation, the hand that started the foundation is able to bring us through to completion. How does the mountain come down? It will come down to shouts of grace. Grace, and before you, that mountain will become level. Listen, we are saved by grace. We walk by grace. We cross the finish line by grace. It is only by the grace of Almighty God through the finished work that Jesus Christ has already done. No opposition, no condemnation. It's not there. That mountain will come down, not to my own efforts, not to trying to climb over that mountain, not to trying to get better. It will come down to shouts of grace, grace. And we'll usher in the capstone of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God is gonna finish the work in his temple. And he will do the same thing in every single one of our lives. And the third thing is, listen to this, there is no separation. No separation. I, look, look if you would at verse number 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death 
all day long were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now listen, when we suffer affliction of persecution and we suffer the affliction of prejudice or, or uh, poverty or pressure and we, and we wonder if God cares. God, are you really there? Do you see what I'm going through? You know what's happening to me and these, these accusations come and we begin to question the love of God. You see, there's something about our flesh. It likes to be pampered, Right? Likes everything to be easy and smooth, right? I mean, am I the only one who feels like this? Likes, likes to uh, be comforted. But our flesh also feels abandoned when that's not happening. When I face hardships, difficulties, trials, and stress. The Romans are gonna face intense persecution. The apostle Paul already has faced six of those seven things he lists. Persecution, sword, peril. He's faced all that stuff already except death. And he would soon die and give his life for the gospel. And then he uses this verse, and at times we feel like sheep being led to the slaughter. He's quoting Psalm 44. Psalm 44 was written to remind believers that along the way they are gonna be persecuted and we're gonna be like sheep being led out to the slaughter. Sheep are dumb animals and so they line them up and they get in line and they make the sacrifices and they don't know what's going on and they just kind of bow and do what they're thinking and all of a sudden the next, nope, they're gone. Sheep, gone to the slaughter. These are feelings we all struggle with. We face hardship and we feel like I'm a sheep going to slaughter. We're under the sword of our sin habits. We feel like at any time it could take us out. We wonder, God, where are you at? What's going on? Do you really love me? But the good news is found in verse 37. In all things, we are more than conquerors. When I'm saved and set free from all my sins on that day, when I say, Jesus, come into my life, I am more than a conqueror. And yet when I go through a test or a trial or I stumble and fall, I am still more than a conqueror. When I'm in the valley, he's with me. Nothing will separate me from the love of God. Therefore, I am more than a conqueror. When I'm on top of the mountain and everything's going great, in all things, I'm more than a conqueror. When I'm rejoicing and happy and excited, I am more than a conqueror. But also when I go through times of grief and loss and suffering and pain, I am still more than a conqueror. In all things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. The word more than conquerors is the word hooper nikeo. Nikeo, close enough. Hooper nikeo, you guys don't know any different. You don't know Greek, Greek anyway. And I really don't either. Hooper Nikeo, and, and, and it literally means the word hooper is where we get our English word hyper from. Hyper, hyper, okay? Hyper, over, higher, hyper. Nikeo is the Greek word for victory. Uh, how many here have Nike tennis shoes? Okay, it was named after a Greek god, Nike. It was the god of victory. And so in the Greek language, the word Nike, Nikeo, meant victory. And so what he is saying is we are hyper-victory. We are more than conquerors. Isn't that awesome? Amazing? We have the power of Christ to overcome. Uh, tell you a story real quick. David, what's it mean to be more than a conqueror? It means not only do we win, but we also take back the spoils of war because of the victory Christ won for us. 
David returns from battle and he gets back to his city of Ziglag. He has a ragtag band of followers and they get there and the city has been burned. His wives have been taken into captivity. He's lost his children to captivity and everything he owns, everything in the city has been plundered and stolen and taken away and they burn the entire city to the ground. The, the followers of David are so angry and so mad they want to kill him on the spot. And so David says, wait a minute, let's seek God. Let's go find these guys and believe God's going to lead us to him. And through a strange set of events, a man is found on the side of the road, an Egyptian who had fought with them to destroy the city. He leads them right to where all the men are. Now here's the key. The Bible says David goes down into that city and, and, and he, just, he literally wipes out every single one of those guys who took Ziglag and burned it to the ground. Not only does he get his wife back, his wives back, plural, he gets his kids back, he gets all the gold and silver back, but something else happens. Every place that raiding party had been, they had been piling up all kinds of animals and gold and silver and clothes and booty. And so what happens is they had gathered all that together. Not only did he get what he had lost back, but he got back all the spoils of war. And David goes back. He doesn't keep it to himself. He sends it out to all the other tribes as a goodwill offering because he is actually going to be the next king of Israel. He's preparing the way for himself, and he splits it up among all the other people. That's the way it is for God. God has already won the victory on Calvary. So in him, I am a conqueror, but I am also a hooper conqueror because I get more than what I went in with in the beginning. I come out not only with a victory, but I also get all the spoils of war through what Jesus Christ has done for me. And Paul comes to the end of the passage, and I got a hurry. He says, I am convinced, verse 38. It literally means I could stake my life on it, that nothing will separate me from the love of God. In fact, in Paul's theology, often suffering only serves to draw us closer to God, never separate us from God. I'm convinced, I'm convinced. Nothing, 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 absolutely nothing. And then he has three pairings here as you look at this real quickly. He says, neither death nor life. In this life, there's nothing that can take me from the arms of God. And even in death, even though in death we're separated from our loved ones here on the earth, we are never ever separated from God because Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So death can't even separate me from the love of God. And, and, and then he says, nor things present, nor things to come. The trials in this life right now cannot separate me from God, nor anything else that may come my way in the future can ever separate me from God. And then he says, nor height, nor depth. There's no place I can get out of the reach of God that he can't reach down to me where I'm at. None of those things. Paul writes these words to the church at Rome, the most powerful nation on the earth. He says, we are more than conquerors. Now, 2,000 years later, Rome is gone. Its cities were in ruins. All you can find is some rocks that were back from the Roman Empire. But now there are two billion believers around the world today serving and following the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing, nothing can stop his church. Nothing can separate me from the Lord. Not persecution, not danger, not sword. There is nothing else that is able to conquer the church of the living God. Hallelujah. And the words of Paul through the Holy Spirit are just as relevant for us today as it was for the church at Rome. 
the love of God cannot, cannot be stopped. And regardless of what come, our, come my way, nothing will separate me from his love. Listen, I don't know what you're going through today. I don't know what trials you're facing, what tests you're facing, what experiences your trials and tests and things that are happening in your life. But this should be a word of encouragement to you. No matter what's happening around you right now, nothing can separate you from his love. And if you haven't opened your heart to his love and said, Jesus, I need you. Come into my heart and life. I believe you died and rose for me right now in this service. You can say, God, I need you. God, save me. God, forgive me. God, come into my life and God will come in right now and live inside of you and you'll be a brand new creature in Christ Jesus. Thanks for listening to the Faith Church Podcast. We are one church at five locations streaming online every Sunday morning at live.faithishere.org. We hope that you're challenged and encouraged by today's message. And if you'd like to watch or listen to previous messages, or if you'd like to learn more about who we are as a church and how you can stay connected, head over to faithishere.org.